Chapter 16 Building a Christian Civilization Some belief systems, some prevailing ideology, makes up the warp and woof of every civilization. Civilizations are not neutral. An analysis of any nation at any point in time will tell us what gives meaning to the people and their institutions. A nation's religious foundation can be determined by looking at its economic system, judicial pronouncements, educational goals, and taxing policy. Culture is religion externalized. Look at a nation's art and music, and there you will find its religion. Read its books and newspapers. Watch its television programs. The outgrowth of civilization will be present on every page and in every program. The habits of individuals and families are also indicators of a nation's religious commitments. The sum of all these expressions will lead to a nation's religious commitments. While it might be beneficial to look at the creeds of the churches, the actions of the people who subscribe to the creeds are a more accurate barometer of what the people really believe. In all of this, a nation's religion shines bright. For man, in his deepest reaches of his being, is religious. He is determined by his relationship to God. Religion, to paraphrase the poet's expressive phrase, is not of life a thing apart, it is man's whole existence. John A. Hutchinson in Faith, Reason, and Existence. Indeed, comes to the same conclusion when he says, For religion is not one aspect or department of life beside the other, as modern secular thought likes to believe, it consists rather in the orientation of all human life to the absolute. In the Soviet Union, for example, a Marxist-Leninist ideology defines the society both in philosophy and policy. The prevailing ideology directs the nation. In Iran, an extreme form of Islamic tyranny dominates the nation. Some societies are in transition. China has broken with many of its Maoist policies and is now experimenting with Western economic practices, still, however, under the strict oversight and control of the communist state. The state still dominates the nation. Families are limited to one child. Forced abortions are state policy. As with the Soviet Union, the state is supreme. The state is God. The state directs the nation and thus civilization develops or dies as the statist God mandates. What of the United States? The United States was at one time Christian. A survey of the religious commitments of the people, its public declarations, and the evaluation from abroad will give us at least some indication of what the impetus was behind our nation's civilization. The United States, a Christian nation. In 1892, the United States Supreme Court, in the case of Church of the Holy Trinity versus United States, determined that the United States had been a Christian nation from its earliest days. The court opinion, delivered by Justice David Josiah Brewer, was an exhaustive study of the historical and legal evidence for America's Christian heritage. After examining hundreds of court cases, state constitutions, and other historical documents, the court came to the following conclusion. There is a universal language pervading them all, having one meaning. They affirm and reaffirm that this is a religious nation. These are not individual sayings, declarations of private individuals. They are organic utterances. They speak the language of the entire people. Then, after citing various American social customs, Brewer added, these and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that is a Christian nation. In 1931, Justice George Sutherland reviewed the 1892 decision of Brewer and reaffirmed that Americans are a Christian people. 
1831, Alexis de Tocqueville and Gustave de Beaumont, commissioned by the French government, came to the United States to examine the various prisons in our country and make a report on their return to France. On their return to France, and after their prison report was complete, Tocqueville began what was to be his two-volume work, Democracy in America, 1834-1840. What did Tocqueville see? What made America the civilization that it was? Tocqueville writes, On my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention, and the longer I stayed there, the more I perceived the great political consequences resulting from this new state of things. In France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions, but in America, I found they were intimately united and that they reigned in common over the same country. But all of this doesn't make a nation or a civilization Christian. A Christian civilization will have as its foundation the basics of the Christian faith. The majority of the people will be professing Christians. They will adhere to their faith in a self-conscious manner and will practice it with little hypocrisy. Those who do not embrace the tenets of the Christian religion will still benefit by its effects on the culture. Tocqueville points out, It may fairly be believed that a certain number of Americans pursue a peculiar form of worship from habit more than from conviction. In the United States, the sovereign authority is religious, and consequently, hypocrisy must be common. But there is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America and there can be no greater proof of its utility and of its conformity to human nature than that its influence is powerfully felt over the most enlightened and free nation on earth. Notice that Tocqueville states that the sovereign authority is religious. What did he mean? Religion, and here we mean Christianity, permeated and pervaded all aspects of the society, though no one ecclesiastical institution did. Neither the church nor the state was sovereign, but religion, Christianity, was the foundation for both. While a man might not belong to a church or profess the Christian faith, he would have been considered an outcast if he did not at least follow the rules laid down by the sovereign authority of religion. The sovereign authority of religion ought to prevail today. As Christians, we're not looking for a church-state or a state-church. The prevailing set of presuppositions, however, should be Christian. Kingdom Aberrations at least six mistaken approaches come to mind when talk shifts to how Christians ought to go about building a Christian civilization. Political pyramidism, spiritual kingdomism, millennial hopeism, social gospelism, ecclesiocracy, and blind utopianism. This chapter will deal with only the first five since utopianism has been dealt with elsewhere in this book. Political pyramidism. The Pyramid Society is a culture in which a majority of the people spend most of their time transforming the civil government to the near exclusion of themselves, their families, churches, schools, businesses, and local civil governments. By changing the powers at the top, we are led to believe that there will be a trickle-down effect of cultural transformation that will blossom into a better society. The problems that face a nation, as this approach sees it, are solely political. Change the state and all of society will change with it. This has been the vision of pagan empires since the building of the Tower of Babel. The Last of the Seven Wonders Decaying symbols of top-down political systems are a constant reminder that the state cannot save. The Great Pyramid of Cheops, or Khufu, at Giza near Cairo is the only surviving edifice of the seven wonders of the world. The Great Pyramid and the Smaller Pyramids are a lasting testimony to the building prowess of the Egyptians. 
They are also evidence of the religion and political theory of Egypt. The very shape of the pyramids tells us something about Egypt's political philosophy. Egypt had a top-down system of total control. The pharaohs believed in political centralization. All of life was controlled through the pharaoh's decree. Their silent witness in the desert kingdom of Egypt should remind us that any top-down political structure is doomed to fail. In the pyramid society, the state controls everything. The ruler is both priest and king. He is the person who has contact with the gods. In modern pyramid societies, the state is God, and politics is its priesthood. The pharaohs were not incorporating a new idea in the development of their political philosophy. All those who reject the true God want to be like God, Genesis 3.5. God is the controller of all things. Rebels against God want to control, to manipulate, and to eventually enslave. This is the dream of all empire builders. Given enough power and authority, these power merchants believe that all of life can be controlled by man and for man. Decentralization, the essence of freedom. There is a great danger in following the political model of Egypt, no matter how good the intentions. Political centralization creates a society of potentially endless political controls. The Bible outlines a decentralized social order where power is diffused and the potential for corruption and tyranny are minimized. Freedom is enhanced because of the diluted strength of the one by the maintenance of the many. The biblical social order is utterly hostile to the pyramid society. The biblical social order is characterized by the following features. First, it is made up of multiple institutional arrangements, each with its own legitimate limited and derived sovereignty under God's universal law. Second, each institution possesses a hierarchical chain of command, but these chains of command are essentially appeals courts, bottom-up institutions, with the primary duty of responsible action placed on people occupying the lower rungs of authority. Third, no single institution has absolute and final authority in any instance. Appeal can be made to other sovereign agents of godly judgment, since no society can attain perfection, there will be instances of injustice, but the social goal is harmony under biblical law. In terms of an orthodox creed, God will judge all men perfectly. The state need not seek perfect justice, nor should citizens be taxed at the astronomical rates necessary to sustain the quest for perfect justice. Constantine, it is said, imposed a top-down state religion on the disintegrating Roman Empire, the Edict of Milan, A.D. 313, secured for Christianity the privileges of a licensed cult, religio licita, and thus granted the rights of all to profess the faith and removed any legal disabilities which they might suffer in consequence. Numerous freedoms were granted to Christians, including the restoration of status lost because of a conscientious objection to certain pagan practices, freedom of assembly and worship, restitution for the confiscation of land and other property. The church was also recognized as a corporation. It was authorized to own property. Constantine's reign, however, came on the heels of an already established Christian revival throughout the empire. Even persecutions could not stop the growth of God's kingdom. Despite persecutions, Christianity had grown to such a degree that it was now considered a threat to the state. In time, Constantine went beyond these basic freedoms and set the stage for Theodosius and a state-imposed pyramid society. Rushduni writes, Christianity represented strength, and Constantine believed in strength. It represented the power of God, and Constantine believed in the power of God, as a Roman. As Constantine saw it, 
the function and calling of the church was to revivify the Roman Empire and to establish on a sound basis the genius of the emperor. Constantine was respectful, kindly, and patient with the church, but in all this he saw the church still as an aspect of the empire, however central a bulwark. The evidence indicates that he saw himself somewhat as Eusebius of Caesarea saw him. Even as God was sovereign and monarch over all in heaven, so Constantine was sovereign and monarch on earth. Eusebius wrote, Thus as he was the first to proclaim to all the sole sovereignty of God, so he himself, as sole sovereign of the Roman world, extended his authority over the whole human race. In time, the Eastern Church gladly surrendered herself to care and protection of the state. While the state should have a protective function regarding the church, the church does not surrender herself to the state, giving up jurisdiction. The church has its own courts, rulers, and jurisdiction. The Western church maintained its own courts because of rampant paganism in the legal system. Administratively and institutionally, the Eastern church merged with the empire to form with it but one politico ecclesiastical organism and acknowledge the emperor's right to administer her. Even when the state is Christian and its courts function on a Christian base, the church must maintain itself as a complementary government. The church's courts should function regardless of the spiritual condition of the state. When the courts are Christian, the church still has jurisdiction over its members. In fact, the church has primary jurisdiction. When the state courts are corrupt, the church offers a refuge for those seeking justice. A Christian civilization means more than converting the state so that it will follow the dictates of God's law. All institutions must be guided by biblical law. Individuals, families, and churches are not to turn jurisdiction over to the state for security. The church does not relax its duties in society because the state becomes more Christian. There is always the danger of accommodation by the church, becoming part of the status quo because Christians have won some political battles. The church historian Philip Schaff warns us by mentioning the corrupting influences of pagan Rome on the church. But the elevation of Christianity as the religion of the state presents also an opposite aspect to our contemplation. It involved great risk of degeneracy to the church. The Roman state, with its laws, institutions, and usages, was still deeply rooted in heathenism and could not be transformed by a magical stroke. The Christianizing of the state amounted, therefore, in great measure to a paganizing and secularizing of the church. The world overcame the church as much as the church overcame the world, and the temporal gain of Christianity was in many respects canceled by spiritual loss. The mass of the Roman Empire was baptized only with water, not with the spirit and fire of the gospel, and it smuggled heathen manners and practices into the sanctuary under a new name. Christians should not expect too much from involvement in politics. God has designated the state to do only so much. Its power is great but its jurisdiction is limited. The state is often seen as a cure-all for the nation's ills. For example, while changing the Supreme Court to reflect a Christian worldview would be welcomed, the nation as a whole would probably rebel at many pro-Christian pronouncements. The abortion issue is a case in point. By the indifference shown by the American public, Christians included, it seems that most Americans prefer abortion. They might not accept convenience abortions, but they want some limited right to abortion family planning, population control, the mother's mental health, teenage pregnancy, and defective children. All of society must be transformed. 
we have not arrived when we can say that we now have a Christian president, a Christian Supreme Court, a majority of Christian congressmen, and other Christian politicians. In fact, we will not have a Christian nation if we do not have Christian Christians, Christian families, and Christian churches. Humanism continues to march forward because our nation is basically humanistic. Spiritual Kingdomism Building a Christian civilization is looked upon with suspicion by those who consider the kingdom of God to be purely spiritual in nature. For them, the kingdom of God is personal and only has a spiritual dimension. The passage in Luke 17.21 restricts the kingdom to the heart. The kingdom of God is within you. There is no external manifestation of the kingdom, and therefore there can be no Christian civilization. The church is the domain of Christian activity. The world is the devil's kingdom. The kingdom is certainly spiritual, but confusion arises over the term spiritual. To be spiritual means to be governed by the Holy Spirit. For many, spirituality means to be preoccupied with non-physical reality. Therefore, in this view, to be spiritual means not to be involved with the material things of this world. Biblically, this is not the case. The devil and his demons are spiritual, non-physical, and evil. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, like frogs, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God Almighty. Revelation 16, 13-14 There are deceitful spirits, 1 Timothy 4, 1, unclean spirits, Revelation 18, 2, and spirits of error, 1 John 4, 6. There is even spiritual wickedness, Ephesians 6, 12. On the other hand, Jesus has a body, physical reality, and he is good. Jesus was raised with his body. Scripture tells us that Jesus shared in flesh and blood, Hebrews 2, 14. He who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is the deceiver and the antichrist. 2 John 7, compare 1 John 4, 1-3. Man's body is not inherently sinful. If so, then Jesus would have been a sinner just because he had a body. We will have bodies in the resurrection, as Jesus does, John 20, 24-27. In the resurrection, we will be raised imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Spiritual does not stand alone. We should use the term as a description of something. There is the Holy Spirit, for example, Acts 13.2, a spirit of truth, 1 John 4.6, spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 9.11, spiritual food, 10.3, a spiritual body, 15.44, spiritual sacrifices, 1 Peter 2.5, spiritual wisdom and understanding, Colossians 1.9, and ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews 1.14 Spiritual is not opposed to material. The Bible does not support the belief that Christians should abandon the world because it is not spiritual. Rather, Christians are to transform the world through the power of the Spirit, using the spiritual law as the standard of righteousness for appraising, judging, where regeneration and restoration are needed. If there are two spiritual forces, then we should expect civilization to be governed by either spiritual wickedness or spiritual wisdom and understanding. So then, the question is not, does civilization have a spiritual dimension? The question is, what spirit is transforming civilization? Civilization, therefore, is the reflection of a chosen spirit, whether Christ or Satan. The Christian, therefore, is to be in the world, but not of the world, John 17, 14-16. 
Civilization is not to squeeze him into the world's mold, Romans 12.2. The spirituality of the Christian is to make a difference in the world. The Christian is to keep himself unstained by the world, James 1.27. He is warned not to get entangled in the defilements of the world, 2 Peter 2.20. Nowhere are Christians told to abandon the world because of its unspiritual character, Matthew 28.18-20, John 3.16. To hand the world over to the spirits of darkness. The world is corrupt because people are corrupt. Where corrupt people control certain aspects of the world, we can expect defilement. But the world does not have to remain in decay. When individuals are redeemed, the effects of their redemption should spread to the society in which they live and conduct their affairs. In this case, the effects of regeneration are manifested outwardly. The world of pagan thinking and practice is to be replaced by Christian thinking and practice. It is a perversion of the gospel to maintain that the world, as the domain where evil exists, is inherently corrupt. We should remember that Jesus came to this world to give his life for the world's redemption, John 3.16. Jesus' redemptive work is comprehensive enough to affect all aspects of life, not just individuals in the world. By denying the spirituality of God's created order, we neglect its importance and give it by default to those who deny Christ. Worldliness is to be avoided, not the world. The Bible warns us, Against worldliness wherever it is found, James 1.27, certainly in the church, and he is emphasizing here precisely the importance of Christian involvement in social issues. Regrettably, we tend to read the scriptures as though their rejection of worldly lifestyle entails a recommendation of an otherworldly one. This approach has led many Christians to abandon the secular realm to the trends and forces of secularism. Indeed, because of their two-realm theory, to a large degree, Christians have themselves to blame for the rapid secularization of the West. If political, industrial, artistic, and journalistic life, to mention only those areas, are branded as essentially worldly, secular, profane, and part of the natural domain of creaturely life, then is it surprising that Christians have not more effectively stemmed the tide of humanism in our culture? God created everything wholly good, Genesis 131. Man, through the fall, became profane, defiled by sin. Redemption restores all things in Christ. Peter failed to understand the gospel's comprehensive cleansing effects. He could not believe the Gentiles were clean. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Acts 10.15, Matthew 15.11, Romans 14.14.20 The fall did not nullify God's pronouncement that the created order was very good. Genesis 1.31 The New Testament reinforces the goodness of God's creation. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. 1 Timothy 4.4.5 Scripture is our guide, not the Platonic view of matter as something less good than the spiritual world. God became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. Jesus worked in his early father's shop as a carpenter, affirming the goodness of the created order and the value of physical labor. A Christian civilization should be built out of conviction, not solely out of reaction to a dominant secularism. Millennial Hopism one way to have a Christian civilization is to wait until Jesus returns to earth to establish one. In the meantime, Christians are to wait. Evil is inevitable. There is little, if anything, the Christian can do to stop evil's advance. In fact, the Christian is living in the last days of man's attempt to build any type of civilization. 
History is filled with examples of generations of Christians awaiting a cataclysmic eschatological event that would transform the world. For a long time, great numbers of Christians were convinced not only that Christ would soon return in power and majesty, but also that when he did return, it would be to establish a messianic kingdom on earth, and they confidently expected that kingdom to last, whether for a thousand years or for an indefinite period. The Montanist of the second century went to Phrygia to await the imminent coming of the kingdom, where the new Jerusalem was about to descend from the heavens onto Phrygian soil, where it would become the habitation of the saints. It seems that every generation has those who believe that Jesus will return in their lifetime to set up his millennial reign. While such a belief can encourage, it can also debilitate. The Millerites of the 19th century are an extreme case in point. Utterly convinced that Jesus Christ would appear on October 22, 1844, many Millerites took decisive action. Some left their jobs, boarded up their businesses, confessed to unsolved crimes, sold their farms and everything they owned, and let their crops go unharvested so that they could spread the word of Christ's coming and meet him with clean consciousness and free of debt. As the expected day approached, thousands of people found it difficult, if not impossible, to live normal lives. The belief of the militarites, fortunately, are no longer widely held. But while the extremist of the militarites is gone, some of the passivity remains. There is little interest in long-term civilization building. If the world cannot be saved in a month, maybe a year, the effort is not really worthwhile. Universities and law schools, for example, are institutions where tangible results of building them takes too long to see. Why put millions into training Christians for secular or worldly occupations? The money could be better spent on evangelism. Anyway, Jesus is coming back soon. So what has happened? We have evangelized and we're still here. Evangelism, witnessing for Christ, is the first step in a comprehensive discipleship program. We save people from hell and for the glory of God. Evangelism has been seen as an end in itself, however, designed to prepare people for the imminent return of Jesus. In the interim, our children need to go to school. Where do they go? The government public schools were the only choice we had. It has also been in the last 20 years that many fundamentalist Christian schools have been started. But even here, the primary purpose is reactionary. Many Christian schools are little more than baptized public schools with Bible courses taught. Few schools train young people to take dominion in the name of the Lord Jesus. Where do we send them after high school? Harvard? Yale? Princeton? What if they want to go to graduate school? If Christians send their children to non-Christian colleges, we should expect a percentage of them to lose their faith, or at least to have it severely rattled. Why? There are few Christian instructors. Why are there few Christian instructors? Because for the most part, Christians have not prepared for the educational future. The time is running out gospel has been preached since the turn of the century. Why spend time and energy building what will soon perish? Why put our money and effort in such worldly enterprises as schools of higher education? Most Christian colleges are similarly short-sighted. They cannot compete with secular institutions. They were never designed to compete. Christian colleges are Bible-oriented. Their purpose is to equip young people for full-time Christian service. Most consider full-time Christian service as exclusively missionary work or the pastorate. Why can't full-time service include journalism, economics, law, education, and politics? 
All of these endeavors have a religious base. A journalist must tell the truth in his reporting. An economist must deal in just weights and measures. Laws are assumed to have a religious foundation. Education also deals with truth-telling. Politics, civil government, is ordained by God as a ministry to promote the good and punish evil. Romans 13.4 Any Christian desiring to enter any of these fields would be in full-time Christian service. What happens when the scare tactics no longer work? What happens if 1988 passes and Jesus has not raptured his church? Of course, it can be said that he will. But let's suppose he doesn't and the timetable is off. Many prophetic Bible teachers have made predictions. History has proved them wrong. The Millerites are a case in point. The imminent return of Jesus has been an inducement for evangelism for some time now. It is wearing a bit thin. Seeing that the same prophetic texts have been used for nearly three generations, millennial hopism can debilitate the church, rendering it ineffective to speak a prophetic word to the world. Though not all premillennialists have accepted the extreme position on the futility of reform activities, one must finally conclude that in many cases, premillennialism broke the spirit of social concern that had played such a prominent role in historic evangelicalism. Its hopeless view of the present order left little room for God or for themselves to work in it. The world and the present age belonged to Satan, and lasting reform was impossible until Jesus returned to destroy Satan's power and set up the perfect kingdom. As Martin Marty has said, premillennialists often give up on the world before God does, and that refusal to get involved in social issues has frequently kept them from fulfilling the biblical mandate to do good and practice justice in the world. Consequently, though there have been significant exceptions, many premillennialists have turned their backs on social reform movements. As a result, the social conscience of an important part of American evangelicalism has atrophied and died. In that regard, at least, premillennialism broke faith with the evangelical spirit that it fought so hard to preserve. Thankfully, many millennial hopists have not abandoned the world though their participation in civilization is highly discriminatory and certainly short-term, many are involved in stemming the tide of a militant humanism. Social Gospelism The social gospel was greatly influenced by the man-centered philosophies of Immanuel Kant, George Hegel, and Darwinian evolution. Karl Marx used the phrase in his Communist Manifesto, 1848. In this view, society will change because something inherent in nature drives man to build a rational, international, civil order. Changing society is inevitable because changing man is inevitable. Evolution makes it so. Moreover, with the effects of higher criticism ravaging the church, the Bible was no longer seen as a reliable standard for personal and social ethics. The Bible could be used as the impetus for change, but it could not give specific steps to bring about change. Morality was determined outside the boundaries of biblical revelation. Obviously, the social gospel is no gospel. Man's basic problem is no longer sin. Natural forces are at work to keep him from reaching his full potential. In time, through the evolutionary process, change will come. Through technology, science, education, and a taxing policy guided by an omnipotent state, the slowness of evolutionary change can be accelerated. Walter Rauschenbusch, for example, in his A Theology for the Social Gospel, spoke of the millennium coming through natural development as an ideal society expresses the communal brotherhood of man. 
Shirley Jackson Case's The Millennial Hope spoke of the long process of humanity evolving and rising higher in the scale of civilization and attainment. The world is constantly growing better. Society's ills are to be remedied by education and legislation, and the responsibility for bringing in the millennium is man's own, to be produced in his own strength. The state plays a large role in the social gospel approach to building a Christian civilization. Advocates of the social gospel see a one undivided realm, the state, as the true order of God and man. The state is given the overall jurisdiction and sovereignty over church, school, family, business, farming, and all else which belongs only to God. The essential function of the social gospel is to render all things unto Caesar and nothing to God. It should be remembered that Evangelicals who oppose the social gospel believe that Christians should influence society. Their animosity was toward those who put all of their emphasis on the public and political side of Christian activity. The evangelicals believe that the first step in societal transformation must come through repentance for sin and total dependence on God's grace supplied to us in the sacrificial death of Jesus. The social gospel had degenerated into religious morality, that is, morality without Christ. The anti-supernaturalism and the radical emphasis upon the social and political application of Christianity, which often accompanied the social gospel, dimmed enthusiasm for political action among fundamentalists. It even stigmatized private expressions of social concern. Once Christ is left out of the transformation of society, a new change agent must arise. The state becomes the new civilization builder, and we're back to political pyramidism without the gospel. All that is wrong with the world must be cured by the omnipotent state. God is no longer seen as the provider. Only the state can provide. The church is impotent. Wealth redistribution can effectively restructure society so that justice prevails. The poor will be better off. Our children will receive better education. The idea of a Christian civilization is abandoned. The ideals of the social gospel are still with us. Christ is abandoned. Let's consider poverty. Here is what one Christian advocates. It seems obvious that private charitable institutions and local governments cannot handle today's poverty problems. It is even more evident that the churches cannot effectively alleviate the situation. The federal government appears to be the only institution in the society which has the capability to act in a way that will eventually solve the problem of poverty. Why then does it not act to do so? According to Michael Harrington, at precisely that moment in history where for the first time a people have the material ability to end poverty, they lack the will to do so. The will of the people is lacking. Obviously, the material ability to end poverty is available. What is the best way to help the poor? Social gospel advocates believe that only the state can adequately distribute wealth. We're told that the churches cannot effectively alleviate the situation. Why not? We're not told. Is it because the will of the people is lacking? Who or what will change the will of the people? The state must take an active role in imposing its will on the people. Coercion is used to bring about a good social end. Is it any wonder that the social gospel was rejected? Unfortunately, the church was not ready with a solution to the changes that were taking place in the 19th century. 
An eschatological pessimism had emerged along with numerous attacks to the foundation of the Christian faith. The policies of the social gospel have come home to roost. Is the church ready, willing, and able to pick up the pieces to build a Christian civilization based on the sure foundation of God's word? Or will the church retreat and allow the bankrupt ideology of humanism to win by default? If our generation does not do it, we will die in the wilderness. Our children's children will judge our efforts. Let us pray that they will not find us wanting. Ecclesiocracy Many people are confused over three terms, all of which are related. Theocracy, the rule of God. Church, individual Christians who make up the body of Christ, as distinct from the church as a government. And church, local jurisdictional and governing bodies as distinct from the church, comprised of individual Christians. We find that critics of Dominion theology and Christian reconstruction confuse the institutional church with the church as the body of Christ made up of individual believers. The church as a government has a very limited jurisdiction. It does not rule over the state, business, education, and the civil courts. But individual Christians who are the body of Christ, the church, should exercise dominion at every level of society. They do not rule as an institution, a government, but as individuals. So then, when Christian Reconstructionists talk about the church taking dominion, they do not mean the institutional church. They have in mind individual Christians as they serve God faithfully in the areas where God has granted them a calling. Recent articles have used the term theocracy to describe those who want to see Christians involved in every area of life. In their minds, a theocracy is what Iran is experiencing, religious leaders, mullahs, who rule the nation. For these, theocracy places the church over the state and every other institution. This is an improper definition. A more correct term to describe the church ruling in society with religious leaders, ministers, or priests as the governmental officials would be ecclesiocracy. Ecclesiocracy is made up of two Greek words, ecclesia, church, and kratos, power, strength, rule. An ecclesiocracy means that the church, a single local body or a network of churches like a denomination, is the sole governing institution in society. There would be no jurisdictional separation between church and state. We know of no group advocating an ecclesiocracy. A recent critic of Christian Reconstruction makes the mistake of identifying his view of ecclesiocracy with a decentralized biblical moral order advocated by Reconstructionists. A theocracy administered without the benefit of Jesus' physical presence begs for subjective reasoning based on the intellectual whims of man's faulty wisdom. Yes, the Holy Spirit can keep such a theocratic rule in line, but he won't if it exists apart from the will of God, and based on his word, no such theocracy will be established by God without Jesus present. Should any such theocracy be established, it would not be a true theocracy, but a totalitarian state of man's own making. The author raises a number of unsupported points that need direct answers. First, we now have the Holy Spirit, who is God, operating in the hearts of Christians. God is now in the world. Second, subjective reasoning as a substitute for an objective standard is doomed to fail whether now or in the millennium. What standard will Jesus use in the millennium? Will his law be different from the Bible? What standard should Christians use now? If the Bible is good enough to show a sinner how to get to heaven, how can we say that it is not adequate to build a civilization? 2 Timothy 3.16-17 Third, who proposes that dominion theology operates apart from the will of God? 
Reconstructionists insist that the will of God is being denied by those who say the kingdom of God is not now operating and that it cannot expand as Christians obey God and get to work to disciple the nations. God's will is that his kingdom come, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10 Fourth, totalitarianism arises when all powers invested in an individual, a powerful elite, or a single government like the church or state. Christian Reconstructionists hold to a very decentralized view of government. Government, for them, is more than the state. Government includes the family, church, and various levels of civil jurisdiction. Rush Dooney writes, We do not equate government with the state. To do so is totalitarianism. Government is, first of all, the self-government of man. It is also the family, the church, the school, our vocation, society, and its institutions. And finally, civil government. Our problem today is that government is equated with the state, an anti-Christian view. What, then, is a theocracy? Like ecclesiocracy, theocracy is made up of two Greek words, theos, God, and kratos, power, strength, rule. Simply, it means the rule of God. The word is not found in the Bible, although the concept is certainly present. The word was coined by Josephus, the Jewish historian, for the Romans in the first century, and appears in his writings only once, in Against Appian 2.164-165. Theocracy describes the rule of God over all his creation including the angels, Christians and non-Christians, the family, local church governments, business, economics, civil governments at all levels, and every other conceivable created thing. Jesus is said to be the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. The triune God is described as he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. Theocracy doesn't refer to the church as God's sole government in society. In a theocracy, law is not administered by a priestly order as God's ministers and agents. While the church is under the rule of God in a theocracy, the church is not the sole agent of the theocracy. This would be an ecclesiocracy, a church state. Theocracy is God's government in, of, and over the universe. It is synonymous with the kingdom of God. The church is not the kingdom of God. The state is not the kingdom of God. The church is under God's kingdom. The state, too, is under God's kingdom. Lex Rex. These concepts are not new. They are not unique to Christian Reconstruction. The church was founded on these ideals. For centuries, Reformed churches lived by these concepts. Samuel Rutherford, author of Lex Rex and participant in the drafting of the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646, wrote the following, Kings and magistrates are gods, and gods deputies and lieutenants upon earth, Psalm 82, 1, 6, 7, Exodus 22, 8, 4, 16, and their throne is the throne of God, 1 Chronicles 22:10. 10. Magistrates, Not the king only, but all the princes of the land and judges are to maintain religion by their commandments. Deuteronomy 116, 2 Chronicles 1-2, Deuteronomy 1619, Ecclesiastes 5-8, Habakkuk 1-4, Micah 3-9, Zechariah 7-9, Hosea 5, 10-11, and to take care of religion. The king may not dispose of men as men as he pleaseth, nor of laws as he pleaseth, nor governing men, killing or keeping alive, punishing and rewarding as he pleaseth. Therefore he hath the trust of life and religion, and hath both tables of the law in his custody. 
This is the very office or official power which the king of kings hath given to all kings under him, and this is a power of the royal office of a king, to govern for the Lord his maker. When men deny God's rule, they implement their own. So then, the question is not theocracy or no theocracy, but rather, whose theocracy? Theocracy is an inescapable concept. The humanists who deny God's government over all of life work to implement man's government over all of life. Since man sees himself as God, we may legitimately say that humanism is theocratic. The Humanist Manifesto, too, states, No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. How do humanists hope to save us? Well, they want humanist laws, humanist schools, humanist courts, a humanist civil government, and humanist economics. In fact, they want the world to be humanistic. And who do you suppose they believe ought to run the world? Humanist, of course. Remember, theocracy is simply the rule of God in the world. If you believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ, then you believe in theocracy as defined above. This does not mean, however, that you believe in a church state or a state church. A Forgotten Legacy The Battle of Britain, said Winston Churchill on the 18th of June, 1940, is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. It would be difficult to learn how Winston Churchill would have defined Christian civilization, but he did see something that made him connect Christianity with the preservation and advance of civilization. England had a long history of Christian influence that resulted in the advance of civilization around the world. America's earliest founders did not break from their English heritage. In fact, they sought to establish Old England in New England. New England was founded consciously and in no fit of absence of mind. Patriots seeking the glory of England first called the attention of their countrymen to these shores. Commercial enterprise made the first attempts at settlement. Puritanism overlaid these feeble beginnings with a proud self-governing commonwealth dedicated to the glory of God and the happiness of peculiar people. These three main streams in the life of old England, the patriotic, the commercial, and the religious, mingled their waters on every slope. The Colonial Colleges of Harvard, 1636, William and Mary, 1693, and Yale, 1701, were founded upon the university system in England. Oxford and Cambridge were their models. There was a disproportionate number of university men who came to New England in relation to the population. This does not include those who received a comprehensive and sound classical education in the English grammar schools. Of course, the university graduates had a cultural impact far greater than their numbers. They were not concentrated in a single geographic area, but were scattered all over the country. These were mainly clergymen who did not serve in the political ruling class, but their influence was great because they were nearly the exclusive source of information for the colonists. William Bradford, John Cotton, John Wilson, Thomas Hooker, and John Eliot, who entered the University of Cambridge at 14, were educated in Old England. The University of Cambridge as they knew it, not as it has since become, was the standard which the New England Puritans attempted, however imperfectly to attain, and the intellectual life of Cambridge set the pace for the intellectual life of New England. The English universities in 1630, as in 1230, were regarded primary as feeders to the church. Every holder of a college fellowship had to be in holy orders. The ambitious young men looked forward to becoming prelates. Most of the students who took degrees intended to be clergymen. 
Of course, Churchill could have had in mind the anti-Christian practices of Adolf Hitler and how they compared to English society. Nazism was antithetical to an English society that was nurtured on the Christian worldview. Nazi Germany was vehemently opposed to Christianity. Under the leadership of Alfred Rosenberg, an outspoken pagan, the Nazi regime intended eventually to destroy Christianity in Germany, if it could, and substitute the old paganism of the early tribal Germanic gods and the new paganism of the Nazi extremist. As Bormann, one of the men closest to Hitler, said publicly in 1941, National Socialism and Christianity are irreconcilable. William L. Shire would later write that what Hitler envisioned for the German Christians was the utter suppression of their religion. In comparison, English society showed no militaristic intention to dominate the world. Churchill simply compared the fruit of each society and the theology that brought them into being. For England, it was Christianity. For Nazi Germany, still Christian in form and certainly with a rich Christian tradition, it was tyranny. Is there such a thing as a Christian civilization? Winston Churchill thought so. Was there ever a time when to talk about civilization one had to describe it as Christian? As we have seen, there was. Of course, there are other questions. Does the Bible give the command that a Christian civilization should be built? This is the fundamental question. Without a biblical mandate, there really is no need to talk about the necessity of building a Christian civilization. Is the development of a Christian civilization a natural development of Christianity itself? That is, should we expect a Christian civilization to mature if Christians are only consistent with the Word of God at a personal level? What would a Christian civilization look like? Would a Christian civilization be built by coercion, either ecclesiastical or statist, or would it be built outside the parameters of established political power structures and yet still impact them? For some, a Christian civilization is possible only with the return of Jesus Christ to earth to set up a kingdom and rule from Jerusalem. It is certainly proper to define this as a Christian civilization, but it avoids the issue of how Christians should define civilization prior to his return. Of course, it says nothing about what Christians ought to do in the meantime. For some, the responsibility in this life for building anything is non-existent. But this is not the historical view of the church. Christians in the earliest centuries used the gospel and the law of God to engage a collapsing classical culture. The Christian message came into classical civilization from Semitic society. In its origin, it was a this-worldly religion, believing that the world and the flesh were basically good, or at least filled with good potentialities, because both were made by God. The body was made in the image of God. God became man in this world with a human body to save men as individuals and to establish peace on earth. This optimistic, this worldly religion was taken into classical civilization at a time when the philosophical outlook of that society was quite incompatible with the religious outlook of Christianity. The classical philosophical outlook, which we might call Neoplatonic, was derived from the teachings of Persian Zoroastrianism, Pythagorean rationalism and Platonism. It was dualistic, dividing the universe into two opposed worlds, the world of matter and flesh and the world of spirit and ideas. The former world was changeable, unknowable, illusionary, and evil. The latter world was eternal, knowable, real, and good. 
Thus, the classical world into which Christianity came about AD 60 believed that the world and the body were unreal, unknowable, corrupt, and hopeless, and that no truth or success could be found by the use of the body, the sense, or matter. A small minority derived from Democritus and the early Ionian scientists through Aristotle, Epicurus, and Lucretius rejected the Platonic dualism, preferring materialism as an explanation of reality. These materialists were equally incompatible with the new Christian religion. Moreover, even the ordinary citizen of Rome had an outlook whose implications were not compatible with the Christian religion times have not changed. We have the same gospel and the same powerful Holy Spirit. Will we adopt the disintegrating worldview of humanism, or will we work to replace its rotting corpse? Our early Christian brethren recognized the opportunity when they saw it. They changed Western civilization for the better. It is our turn to learn by their example without repeating their mistakes. Conclusion Christians are becoming more and more consistent with their theological positions. As we should expect, a shakeup is in the making. As the hard questions begin to surface, the visibility of one's theological stance becomes evident. Can your theology really answer the tough questions? We are being asked to choose a number of theological options. The first is retreatism. A number of prominent Christian leaders are calling on the people of God to forget their earthly future. There's no hope, they say. For generations, self-proclaimed prophets of gloom and doom have predicted the end of the world in their generation. History has proved them wrong. Another ideological group would like to build for the future. New Agers, some conservative groups, and a number of Christian leaders have emphasized the future dimension of civilization building. They all have one thing in common. Natural law is the standard by which we ought to build. Can natural law be the bridge that will unite us all? We don't think so. Unfortunately, many Christians are getting themselves trapped by the advocates of a natural law ethic. They are being told that it has a rich Christian history. As usually happens, the Bible becomes a second-class standard. It's time that Christians begin to understand what's at stake. There is a battle going on. In many cases, the fire is coming down from within the camp. Millions of Christians say they believe the Bible is the Word of God, inerrant and infallible. But when it comes to using the Bible as a blueprint for living, they begin to take out their scissors. You've heard the objections. The Old Testament doesn't apply in the church age. You can't put a non-Christian under biblical law. Since the Christian is under grace, the law is irrelevant. These objections are myths. Just try to understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Paul writes that pastors are to be paid, and he supports this from an obscure verse from the Old Testament. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. 1 Timothy 5.8 Compare Deuteronomy 25.4 Leviticus 19.13 Read what the Bible says about the alien in Israel. The alien was required to keep the law just like the covenant-bound Israelites. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 24:22. Compare Exodus 12:49. The alien was given equal protection under the law. Aliens could acquire property and accumulate wealth. Leviticus 25:47. They were protected from wrongdoing and treated like the native Israelite. Leviticus 19:33-34. A native-born Israelite could not wrong a stranger or oppress him. Exodus 22, 21, 23, 9. If the alien was bound to keep the law of God, then the law of God was the standard for protecting him against injustice as well. 
Deuteronomy 1.16, compare 24.16, 27.19. John the Baptist saw no restriction attached to him when he confronted King Herod and his adulterous relationship with Herodotus, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Mark 6.8, compare Exodus 20.14. At a time when the world is looking for firm ground, Christians should be ready, willing, and able to turn people to the Bible as the blueprint by which we can build a Christian civilization.